the sermon's half over. <laughs> We're almost done. Yeah. Thank you so much for that long scripture, but I just wanted you to get the whole story in its entirety right off the bat. So thank you. Autobiography of a Sinner. I wonder what she's going to talk about. Autobiography. Have you written yours yet? Your whole list, all the, all the stuff you're ashamed of. Have you, have you got that autobiography started? Um, I thought maybe I'd, I'd help you with that a little bit. Um, if each of you would stand when I call on you, um, I'm going to have you just say, we've got microphones at the ready, and you can just sort of tell us your stuff. Any volunteers? Nobody's jumping out? Yeah, I wouldn't either. <laughs> We're not going to do that. I would not either. But uh, <laughs> that's essentially what the Samaritan woman experiences. That's what she did after she encountered Jesus. What? She went and told everybody what they already knew, but that was what happened to her when she encountered Jesus. So we've heard the passage. Let's take a little deep uh, dive into it. John 4, chapter 3. It says, now he had to go to Samaria. Stop. No, he didn't. He didn't have to go to Samaria. In fact, it was strange that Jesus would want to go to Samaria. No Jews wanted to go to Samaria. It was dirty land. It was not forbidden, but certainly not preferred. I'm sure when Jesus says, we're heading north to Samaria, and we're going to go straight there, the disciples were confused, perhaps even angry. What are you talking about? We're not going that way. See, Jesus was going from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, and right in the middle there is Samaria, about a two-day walk from Jerusalem to Samaria. Now, customarily, the Jews would avoid that entire region, would hang over here, go up the Jordan and all the way around. Um, they would go out of their way to go out of their way. It was just not done. And Jesus is like, mm, we're going straight there. He has an appointment with a woman, and he's going to get there as soon as possible. So he doesn't do that. He, he heads straight there. Um, why? I always wonder, you know, what was so horrible about Samaria that you couldn't even walk through it? What was the problem between the Jews and the Samaritans? What's the big deal? I just kind of wondered that. Um, the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, begins in 722 B.C. Can they hold a grudge or what? Right? <laughs> 22 B.C. and they're still ticks. They're still, they still can't pull it together. In 722, the Assyrians conquered that region, and most of the Jews were deported, but a few stayed back, and they intermarried with the pagans who lived there. That was the great sin. They intermarried with other uh, people who were not Jews. And the Jews and the Samaritans then forevermore had different uh, places of worship. The Samaritans worshiped at Mount Gerizim, the Jews in Jerusalem at the temple. So they've got two different things going on. They don't share that in common at all. Two different locations. There is still a Samaritan community. It's very small that still most of them live on Mount Gerizim. They're still there, uh, very few in number. And I found this interesting in my research on this, and I won't go into all of it, but uh, Samaritan women who intermarry there 
are ostracized. Like that was the whole big deal in the first place. But anyway, a um, little background, back to our story. Jesus has walked two days to Samaria. There are no rivers in Samaria. So we know for a fact he was hot and tired and thirsty, no doubt. And it's high noon. And he sits at this well and he waits until a woman comes, a Samaritan woman, carrying heavy jugs for water in the heat of the day. She comes. She is alone. Now, typically, women would not be alone. They would gather water in the morning. They would do it together. The women got together. It was probably kind of a, a fun and social time. They would share the latest news and, no doubt, the latest gossip. And they would have their girl time, right? They lit it's like the ancient water cooler, right? They would kind of hang around, and that was how they uh, thrived socially and how mothers taught daughters and all that, all that activity happened in the morning together as a, a female community. But this woman was not welcome among them. She had to wait until they were well gone and come in the heat of the day alone to this well. She's an outsider even among her own people. So when she arrives at the well, Jesus begins a conversation with her. He has already stepped outside of custom already. He's not even supposed to be there. <laughs> he certainly should not be talking to a woman, and absolutely not a Samaritan woman, and they are alone. John tells us the disciples have gone in to get food and so on, so Jesus and this woman are alone together. That is, that's breaking every rule you can think of. So wrong. And he's speaking to this woman. And he asks a simple question. Will you give me a drink? He's hot. He's tired. It's noon. She's got a bucket. <laughs> Will you give me a drink? Well, she doesn't even answer that question. She points to the obvious. You are a Jewish man. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I love how John gives us these little hints. Did you catch them about how wrong this is? He wants to make sure we understand. He adds that the Jews don't associate with Samaritans, as if, you know, we would have known that, but okay. Uh, they, he doesn't associate with Samaritans. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. He also tells us that the disciples were gone, getting, so we know they're alone. Jesus answers her in a mysterious way. That will not surprise us. <laughs> He takes her from the physical and cultural reality. She's talking about, no, 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 because you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a woman, all that. He takes her out of that and says who he is. At least he starts to reveal it. He says, if you knew the gift of God and he who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. That makes sense? <laughs> of course, you didn't understand it. What's he talking about? So she goes back to the practical ar argument, you don't have a bucket. <laughs> Where are you going to get this living water? Uh, friends, she's arguing with what she knows, just what's in front of her, what she knows. And Jesus listens to that. He doesn't interrupt or correct. He just listens. And then she asks, are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, 
she knows this well. She knows who dug the well. She knows who it belongs to. She knows who is great in her eyes. She knows that. She's worshiping the best way she knows how. She's doing the best she can. She's worshiping in the way she's been taught and how she knows. She's doing the best she can. And Jesus is patient with her. He's going to fix that, but he's patient with her. He doesn't jump down her throat. When we encounter someone of another faith or a different denomination or a different practice or whatever, are we patient and listen to them? This is what I know. This is, you know, do we listen to their story or are we just just ready to just hit them with, yeah, but that's wrong. Yeah, but that's wrong. Ugh, we got to learn to slow down a little bit. Be a little patient like Jesus and just listen. Don't have to agree, but we listen. So Jesus gives her another dose of truth at this point. He says, everyone who drinks of this water in Jacob's well will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again. You can imagine her face is either bent in confusion or twisted in some sort of scowl. He goes on. Indeed, the water I give will become a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman, no doubt baffled and maybe even suspicious at this point. This man is making no sense. He's trying to confuse her, she might think. She isn't quite sure what to make of him, and men have lied to her before. So she sticks to the practical and responds, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to this awful well in the heat of the day all by myself. But Jesus does not leave her confused about who he is, but he tells her to call her husband and come back. We know this woman's past, right? We've we've been told. She knows it. He knows it. Oh, everybody knows it. This sinner. Bring your husband. Come on back. Imagine her face now. Frozen. Red. Eyes downcast. I I don't know. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus agrees. You're right. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you have now isn't even yours. He simply calls it out, just like that. Boom! How did he do that? How did he do that without absolutely destroying her? He calls her out on her source of her greatest shame, and he just names it. Boom! The source of her shame, spoken out loud. Her response, she gives no defense. No backstory, just a partial recognition of who he is. Sir, I think you're a prophet. You must be a prophet. And then she's like, but wait, there's a problem. You're not one of us. And she describes their differences again. Our fathers worship on this mountain, Gerizim. We, we worship over here, and the Jews claim that you have to worship over here. That's a problem. And Jesus takes away the divide puts it together. He says, the Jews and the Samaritans are not exactly enemies. They are a fractured family. 
They were all Jews, the 12 tribes of Jacob. Jacob's well, they were together. They were fractured. Um, when the um, Assyrians conquered that area way back, and, and some of the Jews went this way and some stayed, it fractured the family. Jesus and the, and the woman are standing where Jacob, the father of the tribes of Israel, dug the well. And Jesus declares that the time is coming when the Samaritans will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. The two choices are gone. What? It's not going to be here. It's not going to be about location. The time has come now, now when what you are called or where you worship will not matter. It is who you are and how you live that matters to God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. This is the kind of worshipers God is looking for. Those that worship in spirit and in truth who are honestly themselves before him in worship. God is still looking for us to be honest and authentically ourselves in worship. Again, the woman says what she knows. She says, the Messiah is coming. She's right. The Messiah is coming. When he gets here, he'll explain everything. <laughs> you know, she, she can't understand it. Just, well, I'm just waiting for the Messiah. He'll straighten all this out. And then Jesus responds. Imagine a thunderclap right here. I am he. He declares himself the Messiah. Now, in John's gospel, we have heard the disciples say that Jesus is a Messiah, but this is the first time Jesus declares it of himself to this woman, this sinning Samaritan woman. He reveals himself. And Jesus offers her better water than Jacob's well can provide. He offers the water of salvation so that everyone who drinks it, he says, will be satisfied spiritually. He provides the cup of water that quenches God's thirst for justice. Let me say that again. Jesus provides the cup of water that quenches God's thirst for justice. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath that separates us from God. Jesus offers us salvation in this image of water and also living water, the power to live out our salvation through the Holy Spirit. That well of living water is what we live on. We get saved once, I believe, and then we just keep growing. He gives us that power to do that. That's what that living water is. Jesus offered the woman this water of salvation before she got her act together. Ooh, I'm so glad. Oh, I'm so glad. She's there in her most shameful a horrible state and he offers her that water right now salvation now he offers us the same we can be saved before we get our sin under control and then from that state of grace we can be better at sin management if you want to put it that way because our thirst for sin will begin to disappear it is it isn't wonderful that God takes us right where we are accepts us repentant sinners and gets to work with us, with us, on our propensity to mess up. Now, here's my favorite part of the story. This part confounds me. Jesus calls out this woman's sin. He convicts her of it, but he does not condemn her. He does not. 
He does not shame her. She's already ashamed. He reveals her need for living water in such a way that her confession of her sin becomes her testimony. What? Her confession becomes her testimony. Her sin becomes part of her story. How many of us could do that? Why can she go back to her village and tell people that Jesus told her about everything she'd ever done? Now, either everything she'd ever done was encapsulated in the adultery that she had going on, the idolatry that she had going on, either that or there was a very long conversation we just don't know about, we're not privy to, but either way, she goes back back to the village and says, this man is the Messiah. He told me everything I've ever done. And she does it with a smile. She's telling everybody. How could that be? Think about something from your past that you once hid was shameful, embarrassing. You don't talk about it. You don't talk about that stuff. We don't talk, I don't talk about, we don't talk about that stuff. It's embarrassing. But now you can talk about it because you're not that person anymore. You don't do that anymore. You learned something from that. It didn't kill you. I got to this point of the sermon, and I thought, okay, God, here's where I throw in a baby fold story. Here's where I tell, I, I went through my baby fold Rolodex of story that millions of them I met with so many kids and families over the years. I have so many. And I was going to tell you a story of one of those families who got free from their past and received salvation, and now they're different people. And I could do that. I could do that all day. It's amazing. I love that stuff. And I had penned a paper, and I was ready to write one of those stories, and God stopped me right there. I said, and what's, what's the title of the sermon? Autobiography of a Sinner. Don't tell somebody's biography. Sometimes God calls me to do hard things. But I can tell you, I, I'm going to confess something to you. You're all leaning in now. <laughs> I can only tell you this because I'm free of it. I can only tell you this because I've repented, received forgiveness, and lesson learned, consequences, and moved on. Okay? I can say this because I'm free of it. The woman could share her confession, her shame, because she's free of it that quick with Jesus, that quick. He didn't say, go fix all these relationships and then come back. He fixed it, and she was able to go right away. So I'll tell you my autobiography. In my young adulthood, before ministry, before seminary, before, before all of this, I found myself quite enamored with uh, a man, and he was not mine to have. Jesus could have said the same thing to me. Bring me that guy you're so enamored with. Oh, he's not my husband. I know. He's not your husband. He's somebody else's. And I'm not proud of that at all. At all. I knew it was wrong. We both knew it was wrong. It's stupid and it's going to end poorly. This is 
insane. But I got to tell you, my confession is it was fun for a little while. <laughs> I love the excitement of it. I love the attention and affection. I, like, I even liked the secrecy of it, like some stupid game. But God in his mercy shook me up real quick before things went too far, before there was collateral damage. Shook me up. And I repented of that, and I received his forgiveness. I've never looked back. Now, back when that was happening, I could no more have talked to that, about that ever. Nobody knows this now. This is new information, isn't it? <laughs> and I hope that you won't condemn me because Jesus didn't. He convicted me. If you want to condemn me, go ahead <laughs> because I'm free of it. The rocks that you would throw at is at a person who no longer lives. <laughs> so that's it. God was so merciful in guiding me out of that. Um, it could have been so much worse if we had persisted. But God revealed to me that this man was becoming an idol in my life. I was paying way more attention to him than God. I was following him around. <laughs> and he showed me that, that I was not loving God with my whole heart that I had parceled off a piece of it that I wouldn't want him to see and gave it to someone else. Jeremiah 2.5 says, those who worship worthless idols become worthless themselves. We become what we worship. We take on its nature. You become like what you worship. We become a slave to it. If we're not careful, and I'll let you think about that in your own time, in your own life. So let's close this up with our group confession, not individual, <laughs> and receive grace. So if you are able, please rise. You don't have to say, this is not scary, I promise. We're going to pray together. <laughs> I promise. I would not do that to you. I would do it to me, but I would not do it to you. Uh, and repeat after me. I'll give some short phrases, and you just repeat this prayer after me. I am a sinner. Look at your neighbor and say, and you are too. And go ahead and point at me. So are you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are all in need of a Savior. Jesus, we want this cup of your salvation. Teach us to, to let our spirits flow like living water as we grow closer to you and to each other in Jesus' name. Amen.